grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I was still in diapers when the Challenger explosion happened in the mid-80s. In 2001, after 9-11, when that happened, it was my freshman year of college. I was in my second week at MSU. And even when we had the great housing crisis that uh, unfolded in 2008, the day when it really hit the fan and the Lehman Brothers announced bankruptcy, I was in the hospital with Anne, who had just given birth to our firstborn son, Sam. And I was still just a seminarian at that point. So suffice it to say, I have not really had an experience of preaching on a Sunday after a week like we've had this week. So this is a new experience for me a little bit. What to say, how to lead our church in the midst of this, how to navigate all of the questions, all of the confusion, all of the, the wondering and what ifs. I feel a little bit out of my depth here, just to be perfectly honest with you. And maybe some of you share those feelings too. I mean, all of us who are gathered here this morning, we're all coming with, with different feelings and emotions about everything that's unfolded. For, for some of you, you're feeling that sense of fear and anxiety and worry. You know, you probably shouldn't. You think, I'm a Christian. I shouldn't be afraid. But still, there's a lot about this that's just uncertain. What does the future hold? And so you come this morning with a whole bundle of emotions feeling like, well, what is going to happen? Is it all going to be okay? Others of you are still a little bit skeptical about the whole thing and still wondering, well, is this all just overblown? I mean, it's still just a couple thousand of thousand cases and, and maybe it's just the media getting us all riled up for nothing. Do we really need to be all that concerned about it? And you're wondering, what's all the hubbub about? And probably for most of us, you're somewhere in between or a combination of both those things with a little bit of fear and worry, but also part of you wondering, is this for real? How is it going to unfold or something else altogether? But wherever you're at this morning, here's what I want to say to you. Whatever feelings you have, whatever emotions they might be, whether it's fear or skepticism or something else, bring it here before the Lord. Don't push it down, don't put it to the side, but bring it here and bring it up and lay it before the altar of the Lord. Stay with him who stays with us always. It's really the remarkable thing that we see in the story from today's gospel as well. Now, John tells us right at the outset, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He needed to do it, which technically speaking is not the case. If you're going from Judea to Galilee, there's different routes that people could or would take. It's kind of like if you were going down to Manistee from Arcadia. You could go through Onekama. That would be the most natural route, but maybe you've got something against the portagers. And so you're going to take a jog over and go down 31 through Bear Lake, okay? It's possible. It might take a little bit longer, but it's not that big of a deal. So it was for people who were traveling from uh, down in Judea up to Galilee. If you wanted to avoid Samaria, you could. And as you probably know, for most strict Jews of the time, they did want to avoid Samaria. And they, they made, took every effort in order to do so. Now, I don't need to rehash all of the history of Jews and Samaritans. I think you guys are probably familiar with most of it. Suffice it to say, they didn't want to relate to one another very much. Jews viewed Samaritans as half-breeds, as compromisers, as ones who were not fully pure people of God. 
And so they took every effort to go around Samaria, to take the long route if they had to, lest they go through there. But Jesus does. And in fact, it says that he had to do it. But even then, Jesus arrives in Samaria, and he's there in this town of Sychar. He goes to the well, and suddenly it becomes even more real, this encounter with Samaria, because it's not just the territory, it's a person and a woman at that. A woman of Samaria suddenly comes to the well, and you can sense her own anxiety and unease about finding Jesus there. She even gives him a way out, like, hey, what are you, a Jew, doing talking to me? A woman, and not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. John gives that little aside. For at that time, Jews did not have much dealings with Samaritans. Yeah. So she's wondering, what is he doing here? Why is he talking to me? And then, as the story unfolds, you wonder, why does he stay there? Okay, yeah, Jesus was passing through Samaria. He just really needed a drink. But now this person, this woman is there. Why does Jesus stay there? The answer to that, I think, lies in where the rest of their conversation goes. Jesus says to her, why don't you go call your husband? And she says, well, you know, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. This woman would have clearly been a, uh, an outright fornicator, an immoral person in the eyes of all of her neighbors. Here's this woman. She's living with somebody right now who's not her husband. Indeed, she's had five husbands before that. It probably explains why she's coming at noon to this well. You don't have to think too hard to think, I probably don't want to go to the well in the heat of the day. The normal time would have been either early in the morning or at dusk when the, in the cool of the day. But for her, for this woman, she wants to avoid the public shame that's going to come with her being there in the midst of the crowds. And so she has to avoid it, come at noontime, because here is this woman whom everybody would look at and look down upon. Yes, indeed, Jesus says, you have a husband. You've had many husbands. But there's another detail that I think is often overlooked here. We hear that and we generally just assume, well, here's a really rank pagan. This is a woman who's committed adultery five, six times over. But remember and realize that in that culture at that time, a woman did not have the authority to divorce her husband. And in fact, if she had committed adultery, you guys know what the common penalty was for that. She'd be killed. She'd be stoned. So what does that suggest to us, that this woman has had five husbands before? And she's living with somebody right now who's not her husband. So make no mistake, she's a sinful woman. She has transgressed the law of God. But the fact that she has had five husbands before, what does that tell us? She has been tossed around like a rag doll. Five husbands before have had her and then sent her away again and again and again and again. Imagine the shame that she feels for that. And then now when she looks at Jesus and talks to him, there's almost a sense in her voice, her saying, are you going to go ahead and leave too? Because that's what every other one has done. But precisely for that reason, Jesus stays. Jesus, who is the friend of sinners. 
Jesus, the one who has that staying power. He looks into her life in all of its ugliness, in all of its sinfulness, in all of this brokenness, and he does not turn away. He sees her for who she is, and he is not frightened. He is not repelled, but instead he looks to her with mercy and gives her the promise and the hope of living water realized in him. I think it's because of this merciful, compassionate response that she goes and she runs to the town. She leaves him, in fact. And she says, come and see this man who has said everything that I have done, with the implied second half of that statement being, and he didn't run away screaming, (laughs) but stayed with me, looked at me, and spoke hope to me. This is the mercy of our Lord, the loyalty of our Savior who stays with sinners, who looks at you and me in all of our ugliness and despair, in all of our fear, and he does not look away. The beauty of this was was brought home to me as I was listening to an interview on the radio. It was with a man named Michael Petrie, who is a, a fun-loving, comical guy, loves to tell stories, and he's also a combat veteran. And when he came back from combat, from the war, he found himself telling stories that other people did not want to hear, of some of just the, the awful, difficult things that had happened, in fact, the, the heinous, gruesome things that he had seen. He found that as he was telling those stories, nobody wanted to hear them. They would look away, they would look down, or they would just change the subject altogether. And, and he realized he shouldn't do that because now people looked at him as damaged goods. And so he just stopped telling those stories altogether. He would tell what he called decoy stories, just fun-loving, the funny things that happen when you're at war because he wanted to put those things away. He knew of that ugliness in his own past and he didn't want anyone else to see it. But after some time, he realized that he was losing himself because he was so constantly play-acting. Until one day, he's having a conversation with his best friend, Brock. And Brock tells him, tell me, tell me a story, tell me about this or that thing. And uh, Michael says, do you really want to hear it? Do you want the truth? He says, tell me. And Michael tells him. Tells him about the ugliness of war. Tells him about how they would handle the dead bodies of their friends. What they would do with all of that. Some of you have been through these experiences as well. And have been scarred from it too. He tells him all of that. Not leaving out any of the difficult details. And all the while, his friend Brock looks him straight in the eye. And in this interview later, Michael says, this was the moment that changed everything for me. And the interviewer says, well, well, why is that? He says, well, see, he looked at me. She says, why does that matter? He looked at you. He says, don't you understand? Anyone else, when you look at a monster, you can't help but look away. But my friend, he stayed. And he didn't stop looking at me. This is the loyal love of the Lord for you and me. He looks into the deepest, darkest places of your soul, the things that you have done, the things that have been done to you, and he does not look away. 
He is not repulsed or abhorred by the fear in your heart, by the faithlessness that you might have. He's not put off by your own pride or, or sense that I'm better than whatever might come my way. He looks at you and me and all of our ugliness and all of our sin, and he says, you are my beloved child. My living water is for you. My hope is for you. I am laying my life down for you. This is who our Savior is for us, who does not look away, not once, not ever, but instead in his steadfast, loyal love stays with us. And indeed, we have the, the great token of that as we gather together for the Lord's Supper. Here, we gather for, to receive this sacrament. And indeed, that word sacrament comes from the Latin word sacramentum, which means an oath or a pledge. When we receive this body and blood of our Lord, it is his oath, his pledge to you and me that he stands by you, that he is steadfast, come what may, that nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. But he will be with you always to the very end of the age. And you know what else? We receive this body of Christ here, the steadfast, loyal love of the Lord. We receive the body of Christ here in order that we might be the body of Christ out there, that we might share that steadfast, loyal, staying power of our God, especially in a time like this. I wanna share with you guys a story that I think I've shared before, but it's more relevant now than it ever has been, about the growth of the early church. You know, the early church, the church started with just a handful of people, right? You've got Jesus and his disciples, and after a few years, you only have a few hundred people. Even by the end of the first century, we're only talking a few thousand believers. In the whole vast Roman Empire, millions and millions of people, just a few thousand. But by the time you get to the fourth century, the number of Christians is the majority in the empire. Now it numbers tens of millions of people. And so many have wondered through the years, what happened? What accounts for that supernatural growth? Well, of course, this is something that didn't happen through the power of human beings. It happened through the, the power of God, through the Holy Spirit, and through the proclamation of the gospel. But there's a sociologist by the name of Rodney Stark who wanted to just look at this and try to account for it sociologically to the best of his ability. At this time, he, he himself was not a believer. He was just trying to make sense of how is it that Christianity grew so exponentially. And what he looked at was this. He said, <clears throat> you know, within the first couple of centuries after Christ, in the Roman Empire, there were at least two virulent pandemics that swept through the empire. One of them at least killing about a third of the population of the entire Roman Empire. Imagine. And when that happened, in both cases, the people who fled from the cities were all of the people of means, the rich and the powerful. They got out of Dodge, even the, the doctors and the, especially the priests, the pagan priests. They had the wherewithal, they had the means, and so they left the city. They fled from all of the sick people, all of those who were infected, and they said, you know what, I'm going to look out for myself. I'm going to get mine, make sure that I'm protected. But you know who stayed? The Christians stayed. And they alone had the kind of social network in order to ensure that just the conscientious, simple care for those who were ill. It wasn't anything, they didn't have any magic potions, they didn't have any special medicines. It was simple hygiene, caring for people, showing them compassion 
companionship, when they were isolated, through all of those little measures. In fact, the, the mortality rate, people estimate, was cut by about two-thirds because of the compassion of the Christians. And guess what else? When the pandemic finally blew over, what did you have left in Rome? You had Christians, and you had a whole bunch of pagans who, if they were still alive, were alive because of the care of Christians. And thus, consequently, you had a whole lot of new Christians. The people of God stayed and showed simple mercy to their neighbors in need. And in that way, demonstrated the loyal love of the Lord. And look, I think whatever the future holds with all of this stuff, it's such an opportunity for the people of God in this time to show forth that same kind of loyal love, to stay with people as they are in need, whether they be scared or whether they be infected, to stand by them and to give them the compassion of Christ. I mean, what a time for us as a church to show heart for Arcadia. Our community needs us right now. Our neighbors need you and me right now. And let me get practical for just a minute. Over the last week, like all of you, I've been reading and trying to, to keep up with all these things, and I've been reaching out to others in the community, and many of you were at Dr. Anhalt's presentation yesterday. And one of the things that he said that stuck with me, he said, look, if and when the coronavirus comes to the Arcadia area, the people we know who are going to be most affected by this are going to be the elderly. That's the most vulnerable populations. And he encouraged, he said, what we're really going to need is for the younger people in our community, especially those under 50, in order to help bear the load, to step up and to care for people, bringing medicines, bringing groceries, even just providing companionship. And similarly, I reached out to uh, Jerry, the executive director over at Bacon, to find out what do they need, the Benzie area Christian neighbors. And she said, you know what? People have been giving generously where we're really going to need help probably in the days and weeks and months to come is a disproportionate amount of our volunteers are over the age of 70. So these are the most vulnerable populations. We're going to need some younger people to step up and volunteer. I think it's a great challenge for our congregation, for those of us who are on a little bit younger side of things, to fill into those places. For those of you who don't fit that demographic, to find other ways to serve. There's so many ways that we as a congregation, I think, can band together and be a blessing to our neighbors in this time of need. And in the midst of it, just imagine and to be praying for how God can and will use this in order to draw many more to himself. It's a time for courage and creativity to think about how can we show God's heart, not only for our community here, but for the world. As many people are, are doubting and fearful and wondering, what are we going to do with all of this? As St. Peter says, be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the source of our confidence. That's the source of our hope. And you know, I'll just give you one last thought. I was in here praying in the last couple of days. And as I was, it struck me to sit in this sanctuary and to think about how this building, this altar, this pulpit has seen much worse things. A <laughs> hundred years ago, the pastor, whoever he was, was preaching to people who were scared of the Spanish flu. This very building has withstood the Great Depression, two world wars, 
and so much more besides. Look, we have here an icon, a picture, a symbol of the steadfast love of the Lord, that his church stands fast because his love stands fast. May we be bold in this time and confident that we have a God who abandons us never, who abides with us always. Jesus didn't need to go through Samaria, and yet he did, and he wanted to be there. So it is for us today and always. And may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to sing.